Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast, where we focus on how authors found success, looking at strategies that have taken them to the top of the bestseller charts, as well as what they've learned from their mistakes. Because being an indie author is more than knowing the latest marketing trend. It's about being innovative and creative and learning from your mistakes. Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. I'm Sarah Rosette. And I'm Jamie Albright. And this week on the show, we have Zoe York. Yep, we do. And she was awesome. Yes, this is so much good information and ideas and tips in this episode. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked about so many things like she's got a book out on writing a series and marketing. So we talked about Mm -hmm. that. But then we also talked about like long term goals Mm -hmm. and making your deciding how you want your business to work for you and not. Yeah, it was just really good. It was good. I've, you know, I had heard her on the Spa Girls podcast, mm-hmm. which if you haven't listened to the Spa Girls podcast, you need to go check them out. Mm-hmm. But um, also, she spoke at RAM mm-hmm. just a few weeks ago. And, oh, it was so good. And I'm just so happy that we got her on the, mm-hmm. on the episode, I mean, on the show. And um, I know people are going to love it. And she was also on the um, Kobo podcast an episode mm-hmm. where she talks about um, like how she used her, she didn't have any releases for a certain period of time. I can't remember mm-hmm. how long it was, but what mm-hmm. she did using her backlist. So right. that's a really good episode right. too. So we'll link to yes. the spa girls and to the Kobo podcast. Kobo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what's been going on with you this uh, Christmas week? Yeah. So we're actually recording this on January 1st. So it's happy new year, Friday. everybody. Yeah. yeah. Happy 2021. Um, yeah, I've not done a whole lot this week. Mm -hmm. I've kind of taken this week as a sort of down week. Mm -hmm. I've done some, I learned about Asana. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My assistant, she's using Asana and I was like, okay, I am interested in using this, but it's a little overwhelming. So she gave me a walkthrough of that. So it was really good. And, um, that is pretty much it. It's been pretty relaxing. We've been home and it's been cold, which is unusual right. for Houston, but I've loved it. Right, so, right. Not a lot yeah. going on. Although I do have some news. My cozy course is on sale oh, um, for like two sorry. weeks, probably about mm-hmm. two weeks, 50% off. And I'll put a link in the show notes. So if anyone's interested in the how to outline a cozy mystery, that course is on sale and it's got plot breaks, breakdowns and interviews with authors specific to different cozy subgenres. And all kinds of good stuff in there. So I'll put a link uh, in there for great. that. So, yep. so what are you awesome. doing? Not a thing. I'm going to keep it. <laughs> I'm going to keep it clean. Uh, no, I had already planned to take off the last two weeks of the year. So um, I'm, I'll jump back in on Monday. Um, but I actually am working with um, a kind of a plot doctor uh, mm-hmm. on my book. And she's helping me with some stuff. So we did that before last week before um, Christmas. Mm-hmm. So what she's working on and is kind of in the works and I'll get it back next week and jump back into writing and stuff. But yeah, no, I've just been, uh, we all were very careful and mm-hmm. tried to stay um, away from people before Christmas so that mm-hmm. my kids could at least come home and uh, we, they were here and we had, wonderful Christmas just so much fun and um you know we got about a million kids over here so um (laughs) but it was just so fun and um yeah 
So that's today. I'm just recuperating because they yeah. went home. Yeah, uh, a it's very quiet. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of people had a quiet, uh, non-travel right. Christmas, which is kind of what yeah. we did. Which has yeah. been kind of nice. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, it has. It has been nice, and uh, yeah, just watching Bridgerton, which I believe yes. you've watched Bridgerton too. Yeah, yeah. So I binged it last night. Yeah, most of it, yeah. and. Uh, it's such an interesting take on a Regency romance because normally yeah. it's like the period piece where everything mm-hmm. is so historically accurate and and somber. Yeah, yeah, they are kind of somber. This one has definitely got a different tone to it. No, it's whimsical. It. It, yeah, yeah. And uh, then, and I'm counting down for those um, paranormal romance people out there. Discovery of Witches, the second season starts next week, so I'm. Really excited about that too. So yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I know, I know. So move past Warrior Nun to Regency Romance. Now I'm moving on to. <laughs> I have eclectic taste. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. It, it, it's been great, and I'm looking forward to this year. I'm not. I'm not putting too much. Um, you know, I'm trying not to put too much pressure on 2021. But I am looking forward to it. I did this morning, though, make a list, and I encourage other people to do this. Uh, things I grieve mm-hmm. and things I celebrate last year. Things I grieved and things I celebrated for last year. And I was surprised. My things I celebrated list was twice as long as the things I grieved. And uh, so it kind of gave me a better feeling about 2020. Um, yeah. Because it's just so easy to think of all the things we lost, you know, as far as right. um, the ability to do things and people. And I mean, you know, thank God we didn't lose anybody, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of people that did. And so, um, but just putting things in perspective has helped me a little bit. So, yeah. Anyways, yeah. I think that's, that's a great thing on. to do. And yeah. Yeah. I think we did that a little bit with our writing when we mm-hmm. did the other episode where we talked mm-hmm. about 2020. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's always good to do the big picture, right? And, um, right. Because kind of it's really easy to get lost in the trees. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's what I did. That's yeah. what I did. So we should probably get on to the episode because Zoe York has some so much amazing good things to say to you guys yeah. today. Yep. So we will let Zoe take it away. Today we have Zoe York with us. Hi, Zoe. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? We're great. Yes. We're so So glad glad you're here today. So let me read your bio and we'll get right to the questions. Zoe York is a 13-time USA Today bestselling author of contemporary romance, often with military heroes, and always with scorching heat between the pages. Between her two pen names, she has published more than 50 books since 2013. She is a mouthy and proud member of the Toronto Romance Writers. Very good. So glad That's you're me. here. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us, Zoe, how did you get into writing? I was a reader first. I think a lot of us are, right? And I was pregnant with my second child, and a friend of mine gave me a Kobo. Up to that point, I had been a paperback reader, um, and the digital reading experience just opened my eyes to, first of all, like, I, I mean, I knew that authors wrote the same kind of book. Like Mm -hmm. I was a Pamela Clare fan Mm -hmm. before I was a a digital reader and I knew her books were about the I team. Mm 
Mm-hmm. But I don't think I would have called it the iTeam series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I di- certainly didn't know about Goodreads. I didn't know about like reading order. I wasn't that kind of a reader. Mm-hmm. I just happily picked up whatever book I found in the bookstore or at a yard sale or off somebody's shelf. And I just read it. I didn't care about order or anything like that. And then my friend gave me a Kobo and I started reading a, a book that I got on Kobo, probably free, mm-hmm. and um, got to the end of it. And Kobo said, do you want the next book in the series? Like right now, without having to go anywhere? Yes, please. One, you know, like absolutely one, one click. click. Yeah, One yep. click. Yeah, and, me too. Um, and I just, I kept reading series after series. I then at some point in that period, I found Goodreads. And um, found suggestions when I finished one series on Goodreads. It was like, you might like these other series. I'm like, yes, Kobo would send me the same emails. And then I got to the end. Well, it wasn't the end, but I got to the most recent book in a series. And I thought, I want more of that. Mm -hmm. But like set in Canada, because it Mm -hmm. happened to be an American series. Um, And my brain went, because I was a writer before, like, Mm -hmm. but just, I didn't write genre fiction, but I, I went to school for English lit um, and I would, and women's studies. And then I used that in my job. I created medical cases for Mm -hmm. um, students to practice on. So I would create characters all the time at work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and they had to be, like, really believable characters. That Mm -hmm, was kind mm -hmm. of the key element of that job. Anyway, so I I created characters all day, and then all of a sudden, boop, in my head, a cast of characters in a small town. And I was like, oh. And then I tried to write them down, like, many, many times and did not know how. But that was really, that was the, the core of it. That's what started me. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Sort of the same thing for me with, uh, mm-hmm. but mine was Susan Elizabeth Phillips, her Chicago star series. You know, yeah. I read that thing. I started actually in the middle and then went back and read it all the way through. And I was like, Oh, this is why people read voraciously. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> same thing for me with eBooks too, because I had held off. I was like, I don't really want a reader. You know, that's fine. And I can't remember. I think I needed a, to read a book, I was going to a conference or something and I was going to be on a panel with somebody and the only way to get it was ebook. And I was like, okay, I'll break down and buy it. It's business expense. So I got an e-reader and I did the same thing with the, as you did. I got to the end and I was like, Oh my goodness, I can get the next one. Like right now. Go anywhere. Yeah. yeah, It's like, Oh my goodness. I think I'm in love. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. So what is your definition of success? Well, So success, I think, is about um, having met some of your goals. And that's going to constantly be a moving target. Um, What is success for me right now may not feel like success two or three years from now. Um, But it's, it's that feeling of accomplishment and having really set out to do something and done it in some approximation, sometimes the success that we get is not the success we hoped for. Right. Right. But, um, but, and, and and then there's also like the basics of like some financial security um, and what that looks like for each person is going to be a little bit different. But I do think when we're talking about commercial writing, like being a commercial genre fiction, which is what I consider myself, part of that is being able to support myself and my family. Mm -hmm. 
Very good. Very good. And I noticed on the last podcast we could hear Campbell in the background, and I just heard him there. That's my grandson. So he's making he and the dog make an appearance uh, fairly regularly. (laughs) So, what was your first big success, though? So my first big success was a group project. It was an Mm -hmm. anthology called Seals of Summer. Mm -hmm. And at that point, um, I had four titles out. No, three titles out. Four titles. (laughs) Three (laughs) novels. Three novels and a a prequel novella in my small town series. And that was not a success. That was, it was fine. I was collecting some readers. I had done some cross promotion. Um, I, I had like the foundations of something there, but it certainly wasn't like when, when you say what is success, I wasn't supporting my family with those four books at all. Um, and I certainly wasn't where I wanted to be. And then uh, it, through a group, Romance Divas, there were a group of authors who were all kind of, Um, in the same place, wanting to do something to get to the next level. And at that point, this was, uh, the discussion started at the end of 2013. At that point, group projects, anthologies, indie anthologies were all the rage. And I had just done one. So actually, I should say that my first, my first success was actually an anthology that didn't hit any kind of list. It was called love for the holidays and it was organized by Noelle Adams. Who's a lovely human being. Um, And Noelle reached out to me and asked if I wanted to put my first book, which was a Christmas story that I released in June because I am, if if, if anybody does their strengths, I'm an activator and I'm just like, it's done. (laughs) It's done. I'm putting it out there into the world. It's June. It's so much trouble. Yeah. It gets me in so much trouble. (laughs) (laughs) So I had put, um, I had released what once was perfect, which is a Christmas story in June. And Noelle, who is an absolute legend, reached out to me and she went, I'm thinking of organizing a Christmas anthology. Would you like to put what once was perfect in it? Cause I think it would reach a Christmas market that way. Yeah. <laughs> and that anthology, like so much credit to her and Samantha Chase, who was one of the other authors in it, because they had some audience that I wanted. Um, and, and I put my set, my book in that set and reached my first, like I got my first 500 readers from that collection. So that was love for the holidays, which was, it came out in the fall of 2013. So I'd been an author for about six months at that point and like a published author for about six months. And then based on the success of that, I suggested an anthology to a bunch of other authors on Romance Davis called Seals of Summer. And um, it was just the most massive hit. It came out April, in mid-April. I think probably the release date would have been April 23rd or something like that. Um, And we knew. We knew that our pre-order numbers were good. We knew that we could see lots of buzz just happening on the internet because it was a really tight theme. Navy SEALs, summer. At at that point, we might have been the first thematic SEAL theme anthology I'm not sure but it was we were one of the first few and it just grabbed a whole bunch of readers and we sold 25,000 units in release week hit the New York Times list um stayed on the USA Today list for four weeks like in hindsight I don't like we had no idea we had absolutely no idea what we were doing other than we all wrote Navy SEAL books and we we 
we had so much enthusiasm. So like the biggest lesson that I took away from that, that I will for, never forget and will always share with others is like real enthusiasm, real like passion for a project mm-hmm. is such an important factor. And I have been in anthology since where I have not had enough enthusiasm for it. Right. And you can feel it's palpable, the difference. So that, that set was, that was my first real taste mm-hmm. of, Oh, like we're not talking like you can make a thousand dollars. We're talking, oh, you can each make like ten thousand dollars for a novella, right. Right. and then you have the start of something which you can relaunch and and the mailing list influx and the just the general enthusiasm. I got readers from that set too. So those first two anthologies, they were absolutely my first two tastes of success at two different levels. Right, that's amazing though. That's just. And what, what year was that? Two? 2014 was when Seals of Summer came out. Yeah. yeah. And it's a different time now. But, you know, Noelle and Samantha and I, um, we did a five-year um, anniversary collection uh, in oh, 2018. Cool. The three of us wrote um, th- the exact same idea, really tight, really tropey. Mm-hmm. We each wrote a brand-new novella um, for a set called Snowden for Christmas. And we did it for ourselves and we did it for our readers because we, the three of us to this day, share a collective pool of readers who remember us from that first set. And we did it for us and we did it for them. And that set also hit the USA Today list. And when our first set hadn't, loved it, uh, Love for the Holidays didn't hit a list. It just, it sold well, it made us money and it brought Mm -hmm. me readers. But Snowden for Christmas did. And, um... And we didn't expect it to, because by the time we released that, that was the end of 2018. At that point, people were saying, oh, anthologies are over. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, no, they weren't. (laughs) (laughs) This goes to show, you never know. Yeah, you never know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so we like to talk about or ask about um, things that you've learned and lessons that you've learned and what you wish you had known. So what do you wish you had known about writing your craft? Um, This is about your own story, the story that you want to tell. Don't change it for others. That's different than learn how to tell your story well, right? Mm -hmm. Those are, but, but at the end of the day, if you try and twist what you want to write into what you think somebody else wants you to write, it's not going to be either of those things. And I have definitely written and published stories. They're fine. They're good but they're not great. And the greatest stories that I have published are the ones that have stayed truest to what I wanted it to be from the very beginning. Um, I took, um, and I think I I mentioned strengths already. So I know a lot of people love the Becca Syme Write Better Faster course. And when I took that with her and when I did the coaching with her, Mm -hmm. we talked about the intersection of a couple of my strengths. One is positivity another is activator, another is maximizer, and finally ideation. I'm actually number one ideation, the rest kind of fall underneath there. Um, And we talked, she asked me, which of your stories that you have published are you most proud of? And at that point, it was a book called um, Love in a Sandstorm, which is book six in my Pine Harbor series. Mm -hmm. And that book starts with the black moment, that crisis point. Yeah, wow. Page one. 
Mm-hmm. And it's a bit of a flashback because the story is uh, uh, there's a soldier who is overseas and he meets, he's, he goes through a, a transit camp where there's mm-hmm. a refugee component and he meets a midwife there and he's going on it's hlta it's their like leave in the middle of a tour mm-hmm. he's got two or th- two weeks in um italy and spain and she also has some vacation but she doesn't have anything planned they fall in love and he convinces her to come with him mm-hmm. and when they go to spain they go to gibraltar and they get married and then they both go back and they can't tell anybody that they're married because she's just on the edge of a war zone and he's in a war zone. And that would be a problem. It's mm-hmm. a, just a conflict. Like you, they both can't serve there at the same time if people knew. So they just mm-hmm. don't tell anybody. And then he's badly injured mm-hmm. and he doesn't tell anybody that he has a wife. So she oh. doesn't know that he's been injured. Oh no. So that's not great. No. Right. Mm-hmm. That, and so the book starts with her showing up back in Canada, in his hometown, on his doorstep, saying to his brother, I'm his wife. Is he okay? Mm-hmm. And then we go back in time and we see them falling in love. But the them falling in love, well, very sweet, just didn't feel like the right place to start the book. Mm-hmm. So that, I, that book, what I love about it is that from the first page, like the first page is, well, the first chapter is the worst chapter, the, the most emotional moment, because it's when she confronts him. Mm-hmm. And then it's just repair from that mm-hmm. point forward. The reader goes forth back and forth in time, but it's like, it's an uphill, like uh, what, what's the, in, in fantasy, they call it like hope dark. You know, it's that like, <laughs> it's just hope. Like my book is just from, from dark, dark hope all the way up. Uh, I'm making like an upwards motion. There's none of that normal, like, Uh, climbing tension to a crisis point and then you know the all is lost that doesn't exist in that book and I love it and readers loved it and we talked a lot about that structure and how you don't need to write in a classic three-act rising tension to a crisis point structure if you don't want to and if because here's where maximizer comes in right if you can nail another structure that is just as compelling to readers, that's really like, I don't ever want to say to anybody, Oh, you don't need tension in your book. <laughs> like, no, of course you do that story. <laughs> right. Yeah. But you, but there are different ways to find it. And going back to look at my very first book, that very first book, the crisis point happened 10 years in the past when they, when a couple broke up so that she Mm -hmm. could go off to medical school. Mm -hmm. And then the book picks up where she returns to her small town. They get back together. And from that point forward, it's just like rising happiness. That has, that is my core story. And I spent like six years trying to write a different kind of story. Mm -hmm. That, yeah, it takes a while to figure out how it works for you. And it's so cool that we, you know, everyone talks about the hero's journey and, mm-hmm. you know, how that's the way to write a good book, but you can break some rules that are considered yeah. rules and it's just fine. And there are other story structures. Like right now I'm reading Gail Carringer's The Heroine's Journey, Me which too. is such a great book. It's so good. And she points out, she's not inventing something new here. This is a story structure that exists 
And we, we default to the hero's journey is the story, but it's just one story. And then of course, like um, there's a lot of really good stuff out there about how K dramas are a completely different narrative structure that don't, lead to a a single crisis but they have like kind of a rolling repetitive very action very twisty um structure to them which i think is great that non-western structure is yet another option so Mm -hmm. i'm here for that kind of craft talk like all the time i love it yeah that's great well so tell us what do you wish you'd known about marketing Oh, yes. Okay. So marketing. How long do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's funny because I do a lot of workshops on marketing. I I put myself out there. Hey, if you have a writing group, you want me to come and talk to you about marketing. I'm your girl for that. And it's such a lie because what I'm actually there to talk to you about is writing more books. It's like, because marketing is all about a little bit of a fib. And that's my fib to get in the door to talk about there's an order of operations when it comes to marketing. It starts with product. So until you have a robust product catalog, marketing is going to be really hard. Or, sorry, a robust product catalog is one option. It's the most common option. Mm-hmm. The other is, of course, you absolutely could have like a knock it out of the park the first time single product hit. We do see this every so often with a debut that just absolutely nails it. Um, But that's an incredibly strong product, right? In one item. So you can either have an incredibly strong product line up across a whole catalog or you can have a, an incredibly strong single product. Mm-hmm. But you need either of those things before any marketing efforts are going to work. Right. And then the second part of the order of operations after product would be figuring out what you have more of to spend, time or money. Mm-hmm. And for most people, not everybody, but for most people, we try to spend money too soon. Mm-hmm. When really what we have more of is time, or rather what we can afford is time because when it comes to marketing dollars, one of the mistakes that I have made in the past is thinking I have enough money to spend on something, starting to spend it and then not feeling good about that money. Mm -hmm. And so then I stop spending it before I have reached the point where that investment pays off. And if you spend, let's say like it's Facebook ads, for example, but this isn't just about cost per click advertising. Mm -hmm. It could be literally anything. If you have $300 that you want to spend on a marketing effort, but you only have $300 and actually there's something else you could spend that $300 on, probably you should spend that like car repair or something. Mm -hmm. When you get to the $225 spent mark and it's not working yet, that is a terrible feeling. And you're consumed with, I should have spent this money on a brake repair. Mm -hmm. I should have spent this money on, I should have saved it for Christmas or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then that negative feeling chews you up inside and really interferes with your ability to make a sound business decision Mm -hmm. about that investment. And if you have um, a little bit of time to spend to generate money for your business that is genuinely like disconnected from any other cost in your life, Mm -hmm. then that money feels much safer to reinvest into your business. So it's like, you know, it's have a business account and um, going back to what I talked about at the very beginning, that those first anthologies that I did when I started 
I distinctly remember being angsty about the cost of stock photos. I signed up for like, and I had a job, I had a full-time job, but my full-time job paid for my mortgage and bought groceries. And I was keenly aware I had to save money for Christmas and I could not spend my kids Christmas money Mm -hmm. on like at the point at that point deposit photos didn't yet have their amazing deal like if anybody's listening to this relatively new you want the deposit photos app sumo deal that then it's then it's cheap but at that point when i started that what that didn't exist so deposit photos i think at that point was um maybe it was a per month amount i don't know but i was looking at like 50 or 100 bucks to get a couple of photos and that seemed exorbitant to me and I didn't want to do it. So I signed up for every single stock photo site and I waited for one of them to email me, Hey, we saw you signed up, but you didn't actually buy anything. Do you want a free photo? And the very first photo (laughs) that I put on my first cover was that photo. I got it for free through this offer. And I remember being that aware of dollars right? That I don't want to invest too much. And I didn't get a book bub until the, I received the royalties from the love for the holiday set from Noelle. She sent me the royalties and I immediately applied for a free first and series book bub um, on my first book, because at that point it costs like $350. I think this was t- early 2014. Still um, a lot though. At that, still a lot. Re- yeah, exactly. Yeah. I waited until I earned that $350 from my business right. and I didn't run Facebook ads until after I had, uh, until after I got the royalties from the sales for summer sales of summer set. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I, one of the things that I think I did right. And I probably got that lesson from somebody mm-hmm. on romance. Davis almost certainly was you can market later. You can spend mm-hmm. the marketing money later if you have the money if you if if you have savings and and it doesn't cause you any angst then i can give you a list of like here are some great ways to like boost a debut book Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. i think the vast majority of people that i talk to are like i tried facebook ads and they don't work because you didn't iterate long enough or you didn't invest enough money to figure it out they absolutely work if you invest enough time and money but Some of us can't afford that either time or money. So that's a very long answer to say when it comes to marketing, there's an order of operations and that is product first and then time or money, whichever you have more to afford there, whichever, whichever of those you can afford more. And then the third one. And if you get that order of operations wrong, the marketing plan is not going to feel like it's clicking into place. Yeah. I, um, people that listen to the podcast know this, but I sold plasma to pay for my first edits because we had kids in college and we were paying for a wedding and there was no extra money. But the, the guy on my first cover, I wanted him so badly, but it was $33 on iStock. And you know, you could go to deposit photo and find something for 10 or $12. And I was like, I mean, I agonized for really, a couple of months and my husband finally went just spend the $33. But that was such a, it just seemed like such a big amount of money. And now, you know, I'm so happy I did because he was great. He's great on there, but it just, yeah, that I know that that feeling of what it, what is the best way to spend my money? And when you're just you know paying for it with your plasma, it's, yeah. uh, 
you know, you, you were a little more picky. Yeah, you yeah. a little more picky about what you spend your money on. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, so what assumptions did you make at the beginning of your writing career, and did they turn out to be right or wrong? Oh, well, I thought that if I had enough books, I would it would be done. Like I, it would be, I'd be on easy street. <laughs> that I, I, my assumption was that growth was cumulative. Mm-hmm. and expansive and would never end. Um, and, and I got that idea. You know, I learned some really good things before I hit publish that weren't wrong. So it, this, this one, I, I can understand how I had that idea from those same lessons. So there's, there are lessons that are true and then stop being true at some point. Like, for example, like backlist is king. This is, that, that is absolutely true. Um, there's a TV show, The West Wing, which I am like, here, here's a fun secret. I, it's not that much of a secret because I do share it semi-often in various places, but a lot of people are surprised. I named myself after West Wing characters, <laughs> Zoe and Ainsley. <laughs> like, this is how much of a West Wing fan I am. Like, it's embarrassing. That's that yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, Zoe isn't spelled the same as the character in, in the show, but same name. Anyway. Uh, so there's an episode of the West Wing where the president is running for re-election and he's running against um, quite a populist character uh, played by, what's his name? Josh Brolin's dad. What's his name? <laughs> Mr. Brolin. Oh. Brolin oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know who you're talking about. Um, and, and he is like, he's folksy and, and he always has a 10 word answer. And it doesn't matter what the question is. He has a 10 word answer. And um, the president, who's an, uh, economics professor has like a 50 word answer or a hundred word answer. And he loses people <laughs> all over the place. And his staff are like obsessed with, you need the 10 word answer to win the debate. I think the episode might actually be called 10 word answer. And, um, and that every so often something comes up, like an important lesson in publishing comes up. And in my head, I hear, but what's the next 10 words, which is how he ends up winning the debate because Mr. Brolin's character says he has the perfect 10 word answer. Yeah. He has a perfect 10 word answer. And the president goes, but what's the next 10 words after that? If if you know the next 10 words, it was something about taxes or something like that. uh, Then I'll quit. I'll drop out of the race. And of course he doesn't know the next 10 words and it's the next 10 words after backlist is King that really, that's the thing. That's the thing that you have to come to understand. So when I started publishing, I, um, when I started publishing, I, I knew the backlist was king. What I didn't know was backlist was king until you hit like about three pages of books on Amazon. And then you hit a plateau because there are readers are only going to keep clicking through your catalog so far. And then at that point, if you become, you're maintaining, that's kind of your, your best not best, but like, you know, we have like, there's like decent and then like good and then best outcomes. And I think it's the good outcome is just maintaining that plateau of sales levels, mm-hmm. unless you figure out a new way to break out of that and get to the next level. And I mean, I think that was more than the next 10 words. That was like the next 50 <laughs> words. <laughs> but that, that yeah. part, I didn't know that part when yeah, I started. Yes. Yeah. I think that's so important. I think it's James Brolin. James Brolin. 
Yes. <laughs> and just a little FYI aside, I did some acting and was on some movie sets uh, as extras in Austin when we lived there. And I was on the set with, with Josh Brolin. And I will tell you, he has a gigantic head. Like that's, <laughs> that's my big takeaway. It is gigantic. So <laughs> that's really all I know about. That's what I got out of my acting, my days in acting. Josh Brolin has a gigantic head. So, well, I think that's so true because, well, let me ask you then, what's, what does someone do to get to that next level? Like kind of once you plateau out with those three pages of books, like what, what can someone do to get to that next level? I mean, I might I'm be taking guessing. notes. Yeah, yeah, I know. But I might be guessing here because when it comes to this part of the conversation, I really feel like I'm a peer, not an expert. I don't know what. I don't know what the answer is there. My guess is it, you reinvent yourself a little bit, not too much, not starting over, but there's a, a pivot, a pivot to something stronger, a pivot to something fresh and exciting. Um, and what that pivot is going to be for each person is going to be different. Some people, it's like a refinement of your brand. So like, for example, if you write romantic suspense and your new series is like even better, like, hookier and tighter and I call that series 2.0 where you're doing the same thing exactly again but just better for some people it's series 2.0 but um I had a debrief from Ram romance author mastermind the other day with a couple of friends and there was a theme that went through some of the talks about um like building a tree and then having the like really strong branches coming off that tree and that's your brand but I think that for some people who have made a living at this indie thing. And when I say some people, I'm talking about myself, um, that we don't have necessarily like an Oak tree. We might have like a stand of poplars, but poplars can't sustain major branches coming off of them. Right. So for some of those people, it's like plant a new forest, right? Like actually think consciously before you launch your next thing, is this going to grow into an Oak tree a giant world that can, can sustain like five years of writing series in it, or is this just another poplar? And I'm right now I'm taking Sarah Cannon's um, HB 90 bootcamp for the first time. And she talks about projects. Uh, I just put projects at the top. She talks about projects, goals, and tasks as being separate things where goals is the topmost thing. And I I am thinking right now this week, all I'm consumed by is the thought that I think of every book as a project, not each series or world as a goal. And so it's that kind of like being able to envision yourself in the position of someone like a J.R. Ward or a Carrie Ann Ryan, somebody who, who can build this big, massive, expansive world that can sustain every story that you want to write next. And like we, you know, sometimes authors say to me, because I say, uh, sometimes I talk about writing a series. um, And I say, you know, like you might want to write that series, like only to be five books long, like just end that series or, or start a new series. And people say, but long series really sell. Like I look at someone like, um, you know, like Nora Roberts, you know, her best-selling series is like 50 books long. It's like, yeah, but that wasn't the first series she started. It wasn't even the fifth 
series she started. You look at someone like um, like Robin Carr, who Virgin River is now a TV series, and it was 20 books long. Um, huge hit. Well, she started Virgin River when she was like 30 years into her writing career. Wow. And a lot of people don't know this, um, but Virgin River is not the first series that she wrote in that little corner of Humboldt County in California. She wrote a trilogy called Gold Valley, and Gold Valley exists in Virg in the Virgin River books. You, she, uh, Mel, the midwife, goes to Gold Valley sometimes to talk to a doctor there, an OB guy there, and and that doctor is her OB guy when she has. I'm an, I'm also a huge Virgin River fan. Yeah, um, I, I, mean, <laughs> I feel like sorry, I'm going in the weeds, but the point is, is she wrote Gold Valley. It was a trilogy. It was not an oak tree. And so she worked with her publisher to reboot that exact same world. Mm -hmm. And that became Virgin River where she wrote 20 books in it. And then almost 10 years after she finished writing Virgin River, it became a TV series. That's mm -hmm. an oak tree. Yes. I don't yes. even remember what the question was now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, totally I it was great. It was a great answer, but I think that um, <laughs> you were talking about, you were I asked you about taking the next step. Like once yeah. you kind of hit that plateau, oh, yeah. but okay, I will tell it. you this about that. Uh, before Ram, I was really questioning if I had made a mistake with my last book because I have four books in a runaway bride series, but they're small. They're really small town romances set in this one town. And then I write this, it's a sports rom-com, but it really is a small town rom-com with sports elements, but it's not in the same town because I was thinking I've got a rock star and a country music star in this one town. I can't bring a football, a famous football player into the same town, but now I realize people wouldn't have cared, but um, they wouldn't have cared. Yeah. Not at all. But so I was thinking maybe I made a mistake because my bride's books are, have been so successful that, you know, going off to another place might not have been a good idea, but at Ram, I really did come up with the, they talked about series within a series. And so for the second book in this new series that I'm working on, I'm going to introduce a character that is in the second book, the third book, but then she will be a bride in my bride series. She'll be the fifth bride in my bride series. And yeah. so I think I can, I think I can bring it all around, but yeah, but that's one of the ways I think you can build a big, strong tree is when you yeah. kind of have these series within series sorts of things, or at least connecting yeah. elements. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Rachel Gibson did that. Um, she had, you know, I, cause sometimes I talk to people who are, you know, Oh, well I can't connect my series. Like those towns are in different States. Yeah. Rachel Gibson managed to connect books that are in Texas, mm -hmm. Idaho, and Washington, state. Washington, DC yeah. or oh, Washington, Washington state, Washington yeah. state. Mm -hmm. And yes. And all three and, and characters go mm -hmm. like they go from the small town in Texas to the small town in Idaho. Right. Like right. you need to have the ego yeah. to be like, yeah, no, yeah. this Susan Mallory, mm -hmm. this town can have the, the guy who won the tour de France and yeah. a famous football player and <laughs> an astronaut. I don't know if there's an astronaut in her series, but you know what I mean? Yeah. You can put, it's all so those famous people. Yeah, it's so it true because I, I write lots of cozies and historical mysteries. And so I used to worry about, oh, you know, like I've had six deaths in this little town. and But then I stepped back and I thought about it as a reader. I'm willing to suspend my disbelief that yes. there is another because I want to see these characters interact. I want to see this, you know, 
Yeah. I want, I want the story. I don't, the, the thing that makes it happen is doesn't worry me so much now, but I did that. But you can also, what I did with my series is I had a contemporary cozy series and I wanted to write a historical and I was like, okay, so I was thinking about world building, all the stuff I want to do for the 1920s. And all of a sudden I thought, wait a minute, I have an English village. Why don't I write this story in this same English village in 1920? And I have people email me and go, I just realized these two series are connected. And I'm like, if you like this series, you'll probably like this series. So there's a way to do it, even if it, it may take you a while to work around to it. There's usually a way to bring it together. And I do think like if, if somebody's listening to this and they are resistant to mm-hmm. that connection, like I'm not telling you that you're wrong because again, that, that going back to that strengths, that write better, faster course, like there's a reason why you're resistant to that, right. but work through it, figure it out. Right. Because if you want the success of people who do link it, mm-hmm. then like you need to understand there's a, there is a reason why, and there's probably a reason why that you can make it work for your strengths. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever had an idea that um, like you made a mistake and it turned out to be a good thing? Yeah, almost certainly like yeah. regularly. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I don't know. Um, like if there are like really great examples because the ones that immediately come to mind are things that like, I have no problem with ego. Like I think all of my ideas are spectacular, Mm -hmm. even if they're actually quite ordinary. So (laughs) it's hard for me to do that retrospective look back and be like, yeah, no, I thought that was a mistake. And Oh, look, it accidentally turned out to be great. No, I think everything's amazing. And then I'm bitterly disappointed when it's like, Oh, actually, turns out to be not so much um but the best example is probably the name of uh the series that prime minister is in so as ainsley um i co-write a series called frisky beavers Mm -hmm. and it's called frisky beavers because i was drinking a bottle of frisky beavers winery wine when i made (laughs) it a series so Someone said to us, um, Sadie and I write in, in Slack in a, like a writing sprint room. And one of the people that we were writing with at the time said, I can't believe that nobody has written Justin Trudeau fan fiction yet. And as a joke, I went, I'll be right back. I'm going to go make a cover because I make my own covers. And I went and I found a stock photo of a guy that looks more like Charlie Hunnam than Justin Mm -hmm. Trudeau, but like you can, it's fiction, right? And I put just my name, I put Ainsley Booth on it, put Prime Minister on it, shared it in the group as a joke. And then Sadie, who was my first reader for my uh, first two Ainsley books, said, you must write that. Like if anybody else writes that, you're going to be kicking yourself because you made a cover. And Sadie and I are both Canadian. And she knows that I know a lot about politics because that's Mm -hmm. actually a passion of mine outside of... um, outside of the writing world that's connected to my previous career in education. So um, she goes, you know, like, you know how to write a book. And of course my book is not, it's not, it's not Trudeau fan fiction, but it is like, <laughs> like a love affair. It's the West wing, but Canadian. Right. Yes. yes so, um, so, but I don't write standalones. And so Sadie and I that day wrote the first chapter of the book and she said are we really doing this and that was march 30th and then the next day was april fools 
And we have a reader, um, Maria Rose, who was tweeting bad, um, like, like April Fool's bad reviews. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She, it was hashtag one star review. Like hers, for example, was, um, bought a book called bad to the bone was expecting a shifter romance, got an obedience manual instead. One star review. (laughs) They were all funny and lighthearted. So I replied to her and said, Dr. Bad Boy was expecting Neil Patrick Harris fan fiction, highly disappointed one-star review. Right. And then I went, wait, Neil Patrick Harris is Justin Trudeau's best friend in this alternate universe. (laughs) Dr. Bad Boy's the second book in the series. And I was drinking a glass of red wine and and there's a winery here in Ontario called Frisky Beavers Winery. And, And I was like, Frisky Beavers, that's what they call puck bunnies in there because clearly it's going to have a hockey component to the whole series because you know and when i told my readers they were like i'm sorry what what (laughs) what no gross ew stop no so there was a there was a period so that was april 30th and the book came out may 31st like we were like we were on it um but there was a that two-month window I second guessed Frisky Beavers every single day because initial reader response was not good to it at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. But by that point, I was starting to sink into that. Like you have to trust your own story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just knew, I didn't know that it was a good, dis- good idea. I just knew that that's what it had to be. So I feel right. like that's the distinction. I, yes. I was very aware that that could be a mistake. And in fact, right. On some levels, it was a mistake because over the years of book signings, I have heard from so many people that they can't read something that says Frisky Beavers on the cover. Ah. So there is, there is a bit of a element there of, did I miss the mark? Like, did I, I always wonder, did I lose more readers than I gained? But, Mm -hmm. but that series, like Prime Minister hit the USA Today list on release. That was my next big success. And in part because of the series name. And then that series name is something that those readers who did like it have really latched onto. And that it creates a sense of fandom around it in a way that almost none of like Pine Harbor has a a fandom that's similar, but sometimes series names are a brand and Mm -hmm. sometimes they're just random keywords. Um, And that's one where, yeah, I wasn't sure that it was a good idea until time had passed. And then when I look back, like this year, particularly, um, I get more emails about the next Frisky Beaver book than any other book. Wow. So yeah, I thought it was a mistake at the time. I did it anyway, and I don't regret it. That's great. That's great. I think that's a healthy attitude regardless. Yeah. yeah. You know, cause you're learning the whole time anyway. Yeah. Well, what about the opposite? Have you ever had something that you thought was like, this is the best idea ever. And then it turned out to be not so great. Yeah, many. Many. Let's have a, yeah, how much time do we got? Um, I, okay. So I, because I, I have in my past been pretty prolific, there have been times in my life where I've been like, right, time for a new X series. And for example, Navy SEALs, like after that first SEALs of Summer set, I then wrote, I've written 18 Navy SEAL books um, uh, 
it, since then. Um, and seals are something definitely that my readers want. I know that. And um, I have a friend who wanted to write a series set at an adult summer camp and loved this idea, like absolutely loved it. So our, our origin story uh, was that there was this core group of people, like the movie Indian Summer, who they went to this summer camp as kids and mm -hmm. then it's fallen on hard times. Two of them buy it, turn it into a resort and romances can happen at this summer camp, right? Yeah. Awesome. It's like one world. We can have this shared space. We can have a shared newsletter for it. And like, don't get me wrong, that world has some fans, like some core fans. Again, I go to signings, people say like, are there any more Camp Firefly Falls books coming out? And the answer is no. Yeah. Because like the idea just landed with a thud in the marketplace. So it worked really well. It sold well to our existing fan bases. Mm -hmm but just did not translate. Like if you say to me adult summer camp, I go the movie Indian summer and I'm there. One mm -hmm. click. I want all. And apparently I'm very alone in that experience. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't, there were no ads that I could run that would make it in any way profitable. Yes. I don't know. I don't know what the, I, and I, to this day, I can't other than like acknowledging that it yeah. just didn't click. I can't tell you what was wrong with that idea. And other people are like, because it's weird. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. Like, so even if you tried now to tell me what was wrong with that idea, I'd be like, no, it's still a genius oh, idea. <laughs> you sound like Becca Sime. We've had her, she was on last week and then um, we've had her on before, but she talks about a series that she wrote with unique werewolves. Yeah. It's like, what could be more genius than Munich werewolves? And it just didn't sell. <laughs> but they're going to go back to it because they think they can, re they can yes. fix it. But yeah. To this day, I have ideas where I'm like, I just need to put more Navy SEALs at this summer camp. Yeah. And, and we, we split up the world. So for a while there, it was like one long series with 22 books in it across all these different right. authors. And then we, we collapsed. That wasn't working. We mm -hmm. had to admit that after three. We, we persevered for three summers of these books. <laughs> and then we were like, okay, this is not actually working. Um. And so then we split it up. So then I took my three books that have Navy SEALs at summer camp and I called them SEALs at summer camp. No disaster. Okay. It's my, they are by far my worst selling Navy SEAL books and but, still I want to write more. So yes. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> We've talked a lot about series already, but is there anything, you know, you have your book about how to write a series. Mm -hmm. And so um, is there anything else that you wish you had known about writing a series? So the cast really matters and you can bump into this error in a bunch of different ways. Um, you can have too big of a cast at the start of your series. You can have not big of enough of a cast. Um, you could accidentally, I did this even just in my most recent series that I'm working on right now, a, a first draft error on your first book in a new series is to think that, you know, who the next book is going to be about, but your readers think it's somebody else. <laughs> so, so that's like, that is something which is, I still feel like it's very much a, a work in progress for myself is understanding 
just the right balance there between who do you introduce, when do you introduce them, how much of their story do you need to know so that you can leave a couple of breadcrumbs while still making the, each book very satisfying on their own. Like, I don't really ever want book one to feel like, oh, it's just a preamble to introducing this whole. Um, so what I actually did was when I got to the end of the first draft of the first book, my editor said, why is Will's book next when Adam is clearly the person people are going to ask for? So I changed it. So I think that it's important to be, to, to not be so rigid in your series building that you aren't able to be responsive to kind of, to that kind of feedback. Um, and the other thing is that worlds aren't big enough. And, and we talked a little bit about this, right? Mm-hmm. Like know when you have an oak tree and know when you have a poplar. Um, and, and, and we, series seem so daunting before you start them. But then when you get to the end of it and you turn around and you look back, it's achievable, it's doable. Mm-hmm. Um, so and even now, like sometimes I think, Oh, I'll write a trilogy. Like, I, I don't have room in my life for another series. So maybe I'll do a trilogy. And I don't, when I say that out loud, like the other me, the other half of me is like, why are you shooting yourself in the foot like that? Don't do that. <laughs> so series that remains something, even though I did write a book about it, it's very much like an introduction to the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's something which I will never ever know enough about never stop wanting to talk about right um and always be a work in progress for myself mm-hmm. that's right so quick question on the series thing do you think that you can be successful like like you talked about the oak tree or the field of poplars do you think that you can achieve the same sort of success like if you have a field of poplars versus a single oak tree I yeah mean, yes Absolutely. Uh, it takes more of them. So yeah. when, so at Romance Author Mastermind, I talked about building a wall. Um, so if, if you, my husband likes to build things. I don't like physically. I don't like to build anything physically. I like to help him. Like, mm-hmm. I like to make sure that he does it. Like, I'm like, I'll buy the supplies. And, yeah. But so you have an idea in your head of what it is that you want to build a wall or, you know, something else. And um, your goal is the finished project, right? So you, you make a blueprint in your head. And so a wall, the blueprint is like, it's going to be like three feet tall. So if a three foot tall, if the three foot mark is like, let's say it's like six figures, right? I want to earn six figures a year. That's your, that's your goal. There are so many different ways that you could build a three foot wall. There are so many ways that you can build a six figure a year career, but you need to understand that if you build a wall out of small bricks, it takes a lot more bricks than if you build it out of boulders. You can build a three-foot wall out of pebbles. It just takes a lot more pebbles. And we see that, right? We see people who do rapid release churning out like 25,000 words a month, and they are consistently like 12 to 15 of those a year, that's one model that absolutely can work. We see people who do one novel a year and they spend the rest of the year marketing and building and long pre-orders. And that's another model that can absolutely work. But the error comes in having one model and expecting it to be the other. Right. Mm -hmm. And we, and we, I do this 
I'm not always honest with myself. That's something that I'm really having to grapple with this week, right? That so the Sarah Cannon's uh, HB90 thing is all about quarter planning. And it's not a new concept like this business model. You know, you plan for Q1 and then to Q2, there's four quarters in a year. Um, and my, my internal, like, pu- like the pulse of how often I want to publish in 20, going into 2021 is still the same instinct that I had in 2015 when I only had 10 books in my catalog. Mm -hmm. And that like that pulse inside of me is make more backlist, backlist is king, make more backlist, backlist is king. I don't need any more backlist. I'm good. What I need are new releases that are very consciously connected to my backlist that I give lots of space around Um, So that I can do like a nice like lead up to a release and then extend that release as long as I possibly can. Do I do that? No. I often (laughs) shortchange myself because I haven't yet shifted my mindset to doing that because I know that that rapid release, that that frequent release, not rapid release, but frequent release model, um, I know that works. And so I keep trying to do that. But my goals have shifted. My business model has shifted. And I think that it hurts me a little bit mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. not kind of figure out, Oh wait, I'm trying to build a whole different wall here, you know, mm-hmm. with different materials. Yeah. With different materials. Yeah. yeah, That's good. Well, that brings us to, to my next question, which is about your talk at Ram, which was on goal setting and, and just goals in general. And um, so that was an hour long talk. Can you give us a few, like in a few minutes, like just some things people need to be thinking about. I mean, we're in the year going into 2021 coming off a very difficult year. So I guess the question is, are there a few things we can kind of remind ourselves of or, or factor into our goal planning? And then what do we do if we had big goals this year and just, you know, for what, for the pandemic or whatever reason, we didn't hit those. Like how do we kind of get ourselves back on track? Yeah. I did not hit my goals for this year. Um, Right off the top. I just want to say like, so I, um, when I first started publishing my first year, my second year, I wrote like an escalating amount of words, a a reasonable Mm -hmm. amount of words that probably most people would relate to. And then in 2015, 2016, 2017, each of those years, I wrote half a million words, which is a full-time level of word productivity. Lots of people hit that. It takes some time to scale up to that, but I was writing full-time. And then my family had a personal setback and I didn't write at all for six months. And coming out the end of that, um, so 2018, 2019, and now 2020, each year I've only managed 200,000 words. Now, first of all, I want to say, the 200,000 words is a perfectly acceptable amount of words to produce in a year. Um, There's nothing wrong with that, but there is definitely, it's, you know, it's that same mindset I mentioned before of I need to release frequently. Mm -hmm. Well, 200,000 words a year does not release frequently unless they're very short works, which my books are not. So um, there's this constant tension in my head of I want to write more because I want to release more frequently. Mm-hmm. No, you should just try and really smarter with the words that you have. Mm-hmm. I know both of these things. There's reasons for both of those thoughts and they're both under, like I try to be gentle with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but this year I thought 
at the beginning of this year, like so many people, I had great plans. Um, and I thought this is the year where I'm going to start scaling back up. I'm going to hit somewhere between that 200,000 word mark and 500,000 words. Mm -hmm. 500,000 words is like my ideal goal, my top goal. I would be thrilled with 350. Um, and it's, it'll be fine if we only do 200,000 again. Yes. And sure enough, yes. 215,000 words is what I ended up publishing this year. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. Um, it's fine. Fine is like the word that my therapist doesn't want me to say anymore. It's fine. Exactly. Because it's not. It feels yeah. like survival only, right? Yes. yes. But sometimes surviving is the best thing that we can do. Mm -hmm. It's it's remarkable. It's commendable. Mm -hmm. And publishing is a roller coaster. There are ups and downs. Mm -hmm. So if you can survive the downs then you're ready for when the next up comes. There's an opportunity to go on that next up on the roller coaster. So part of it is for me, when I talk about goals, part of it is being gentle with yourself and being willing to realign your goals. Part of it is having those like multi-tier goals so that you're not like constantly bitterly disappointed with yourself if you don't hit some ideal that was always going to be a long shot anyway mm -hmm. right so um so if i were to kind of encapsulate encapsulate my my ram talk it's um the, it, the book that i mentioned at the top uh, love in a sandstorm um the the caption the, the dedication for that book is we don't always get what we want but we can make what we get something worth wanting Yes. So in picking our goals, what we want to do is look, it's not everybody has, again, strengths. Not everybody has that futuristic ability to pick a point way in the future. But for mm -hmm. me, let me just mm -hmm. not say what everyone should do first. For me, what I do is I ask myself five years from now, what do I want to have written? Five years from now, what do I want to be known for? And am I pointing in that direction? Mm -hmm. And if I'm not pointing in that direction, if I'm pointing off in the weeds, stop what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I say that to myself. I'm not telling anybody else that. But I say, to, I say to myself, Zoe, I always talk to myself in the third person. Zoe, stop what you're doing. That is not where you want to be. So why are you wasting your time on that? Stop it. Don't worry about what readers say. Don't worry about any other external expectation. Stop what you're doing and realign your, your current project to point to where you want to be going. Okay. And then, then you start to think, okay. So like, for example, if I were to be writing right now, billionaire books, because I have, mm -hmm. I, I wrote a trilogy of billionaire rom-coms, not where I want to be going. Don't meet my mm -hmm. long-term vision, but I wrote them. Um, if I was focusing on that, then I wouldn't be getting to where I want to be, which is like, I love writing these big epic family sagas in, mm -hmm. in small towns. But in the short term, they did make me happy. Like, like mm -hmm. I was very unhappy when I was publishing them because they weren't, because I wasn't, I wasn't getting what I wanted out of them mm -hmm. because they didn't meet my long-term goals. Right. So there's that, like, you're never, I don't think you're ever going to hit like that ideal perfect result out of a project that is not aligned to your long-term goals because you're not going to have the enthusiasm that we talked about yeah. earlier. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But even though those rom-com books are not like the story of my heart, they're not where I want to be going, etc. Um, 
I can still make them something worth wanting in the short term. You can salvage Mm -hmm. a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not having so many, um, so many of us are like too binary about if something is good or bad, right? Mm -hmm. Like these, if, you know, if this book doesn't maintain a 4.3 out of five star average, it must mean that it's bad. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. It's okay. If your series Mm -hmm. is rocking a 3.5 average, whatever, there's still people consuming it. And you Mm -hmm. can make that something worth wanting too, just Mm -hmm. in its own thing. So I also Mm -hmm. really like when we talk about goals, kind of separating our projects into like premier projects that serve our long-term vision and little, we can have little side things that we can still monetize, still make profitable, but you Mm -hmm. just can't confuse those two things. Right. Very good. Very good. So tell us about TikTok. Uh, So you're on TikTok. I know several other authors are. Um, I guess, first of all, why did, why TikTok? I mean, did you, do you just enjoy like the format or the videos, the short videos or whatever? Yeah. So, I mean, I like video content. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also, so the short answer, pandemic. I'm on mm-hmm. TikTok because of the pandemic. I'm on right, YouTube right. because of the pandemic. Um, right. I have a YouTube channel. Like it was one of the platforms that I established back in 2013 when I secured mm-hmm. all the, you know, I had Facebook, I had TikTok mm-hmm. or Twitter. Uh, I had, I grabbed my YouTube channel and for, uh, I don't know, eight years, um, I used YouTube to hold my uh, book trailers mm-hmm. and I made a couple of absolutely random YouTube contributions. Like one year in 2015, I made an accent tag video where I, it's like a bunch of words that you read in your own natural accent. And you say, I'm from London, Ontario, Canada. And this is how I say June bug or like whatever. Um, That, that, that video, I don't know. It's random, but it's on my channel, but that's Mm -hmm. what my YouTube channel was until March. Mm-hmm. And I love, I love podcasts. I love conferences. I love talking to mm-hmm. people and March was just so isolating. Mm-hmm. So I started making YouTube videos, mm-hmm. um, about writing. Uh, and I cried on one of them and talked about how I couldn't write. It was very, very emo, very March. And, very 2020. and then, yeah. yeah, very 2020. And, um, and by May, I had transitioned to like, no, it's fine. We're going to come out of this just fine. And that was when I discovered TikTok. And mm-hmm. so TikTok is on the same spectrum. Like if you, you know, if, t- if, if Twitter is at one end of the spectrum where it's all words pretty much, um, mm-hmm. and then Facebook is a lot of words and um, Instagram is in the middle. It's a mix of aesthetic and words. Mm-hmm. And then there's YouTube, which is long form video. TikTok mm-hmm. is at the other extreme, short videos very random completely chaotic but there's also like there is no mastering it mm-hmm. you think you you when you go on tiktok for the first time you will see some author accounts if you search those hashtags and you'll think oh man they have a great platform mm-hmm. and then those people disappear like within a couple of months mm-hmm. they're replaced by something new it's completely dominated by um by like in these young influencers mm-hmm but I love the freedom of that. It means Mm -hmm. that you can just kind of have fun with it. You can just consume it. You don't need to produce anything for it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not really a platform that I think about, like how can I leverage this to sell books? Mm -hmm. But then actually that's how I feel about social media almost completely. Mm -hmm. It's when I started publishing, uh, 
well, after I had published, because it was 2014. In early 2014, Courtney Milan had a post on K-Boards about the, um, what does she call them? Regions of discoverability. And if you Google mm-hmm. Courtney Milan regions of discoverability, the post will come up. It was really a, a post about in defense of like the perma-free book, mm-hmm. because back in 2014 people are like you can't make a book free that won't help you but we've moved on from that discourse yeah really (laughs) but but what she talks about in it there's a there's a there's a kernel there that is like absolutely gold observation that when you first start publishing and you're in this first region of discoverability every single thing that you do is hand selling Mm-hmm. Um, if anybody is lucky enough to see your, your book listing, it's because you put the link in front of them or you physically put, you know, sold the, the paperback. And then region two is most of that with just a little tiny bit of word of mouth. And then there's this big gap before you bump into region three where your books just kind of sell themselves, maybe not very well, but mm-hmm. there is that kind of continual rolling sales trickle on effect from previous mm-hmm. sales. And I think that, um, a lot of the time we expect social media to instantly dump us into that region three of visibility, but the vast majority of it, even like on Instagram, I feel like I, my Instagram game is okay. And yet I'm lucky. I think if I see a couple of clicks on, if I, if I say link in bio, um, even if like a hundred people or 200 people respond to a post, I'm lucky if I see a couple of clicks on Instagram. So my expectations for social media in terms of selling books is very low. Other people mm-hmm. have better luck with it, but I never particularly have. Yeah. yeah. Very good. So, um, so I guess for TikTok, what, what I see is um, I haven't, I'm on, but I just watch, I, I haven't created anything, but it's, it's a little bit of everything. It's a little bit of blowing off steam. It's a little bit, of therapy. It's a little bit of selling. It's a little bit of fun. And so I think if you're, if you like the video format, then I think that it's great for, for a lot of people and you don't have to be, you know, a 16 year old influencer to, um, you don't. The other great thing about TikTok, and it's, you can, you can replicate this across like a whole bunch of other apps Mm -hmm. is that they have like built in filters and stuff like that. So, which gives you fresh content to take to other platforms. Mm -hmm. So for example, like I just posted, um, something on my Instagram, which was a TikTok originally. So TikTok, you can use still images. It doesn't need to be video of your face. Mm-hmm. You can use still images in one of their templates and it'll make it like move and be all squiggly and stuff right. like that. And then, and then a copy of that automatically downloads to your phone. Well, then you can repurpose that to Instagram, to Facebook. That's it's awesome. that vertical yeah. format. So it kind of mm-hmm. aligns best to stories, right. but I cropped it for an Instagram post. And that actually got more engagement on Instagram than it did on TikTok. Yeah. So yeah. if you're somebody who, I don't know what to post on insert whatever, the more places where you try to create content, mm-hmm. it'll probably start to spark. Oh, wait, this is how you can create content. Like right. it, if you think of TikTok more as a, so, a free social media school or mm-hmm. course or class rather than I have to go there and be good. TikTok mm-hmm. is a place where you do not need to be good. Most videos are not good. <laughs> um, that's part of the charm of it, right? It's like mm-hmm. the antithesis of Instagram. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. 
It's so interesting. Yeah. It is. Yeah. yeah. Like a whole, like there's, you can probably find a place that fits you for social media, but I feel like social yeah. media is more you talking to people who already know you. And yeah. if you're going to just, if people are going to discover you there, you're probably paying for it. You know, I think that's true. And I do think also that again, strengths, like if you're somebody who has, um, significance or communication, then getting into a new form of social media is going to be really hard because at first it will feel like an echo chamber. And and that, if that feels toxic and negative, like don't feel like you should. So one of the things for me, because I have high positivity is I have learned that I actually don't spend a lot of time in author loops because they lead to debate and I don't like debate. For one thing, my ego knows that I'm right. And then, you know, I like, I don't really establish that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't need to have a conversation with somebody who thinks that I'm wrong. That's yeah. not helpful yeah. or positive right. for me. So I don't spend time in those spaces. Mm-hmm. But for somebody who has high communication, they might really thrive off of that back and forth. So their time like time is finite so spend your time where you get becca calls them energy pennies right spend your time where you're going to get something out of it and i don't think that having a public face on social media is inherently better than having private um than spending your private time in author loops for example that's just where i choose to spend it so it's not even like which social media platform is better but like are you an observer or a producer and both okay. of those can be useful as, because as a writer, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be writing books. Everything right. else is secondary to that, right? right? So the secondary thing, pick the thing that gives you the energy pennies. Yes. Very good advice. Yeah. So what's the best thing you've done to set yourself up for success? Um, finding worlds that I really I'm enthusiastic about writing in like my, my, as Zoe, my premier brand is a town called Pine Harbor. I love Pine Harbor. It's my home. Um, it's, uh, I, I, the books are hard to write. Like bo- all books are hard to write. Um, except for those rare ones like prime minister that just happened. Um, but the vast majority of books are very hard for me to write, but spending time in the world mm-hmm. is not hard. Right. And that the same with frisky beavers, like, both of those two worlds are very easy to spend time in. I'm enthusiastic about spending time in them. And, and that when writing is hard, that makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay. Well, it's been great having you here. Like I could, we could go on talking forever, but I'm sure you, <laughs> yeah. we all have things to do, but uh, so tell people where they can find you and uh, we've the name of your it. book for writers. And the name, yes, two books, the name right? of your books. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and uh, we'll put those in the show notes and everything. Awesome. Yeah, so my nonfiction stuff is at romanceyourbrand.com. I have two nonfiction books, Romance Your Brand and Romance Your Plan. As I have already confessed in this uh, in this episode, they pretend to be marketing books, but they're really books about how you should just write more books. Um, <laughs> and I also have a YouTube video, a YouTube series all about that. So youtube.com forward slash Zoe York writes, Zoe York writes. Um, Zoe York writes is where I am most places on the internet, like facebook.com, Zoe York writes, twitter.com, Zoe York writes. And then my books are at Zoe York.com and Ainsleybooth.com. Those are my two pen names. All right. Well, we will have all those yeah. links in the show notes at wish I'd known for writers.com. 
and we'll see everybody next week. Thanks for being here. Bye. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. We hope this episode inspired you, empowered you, and made you laugh a little bit too. If you loved it, tell your friends about it. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review. We look forward to being with you again next week.